Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And my guest today is Julia Borston, the author of When Women Lead, and of course, a wonderful, amazing reporter and star on CNBC. And we're going to be talking about what is different when women start and run companies. Now, Julia is an old friend of mine. I met her way back in the early 2000s when she first started out working at CNBC, and I've been watching her career, and she wrote this book and sent it to me, and I was just like blown away. As you heard on Faux Monday, I just thought the book was really cool, really well-researched, really thoughtful. And so I was delighted to have her come on the show and talk about what she learned and what she wrote about and when women lead. Now, Julia is CNBC's senior media and tech correspondent, and she's been an on-air reporter for the network since 2006. She also plays a central role on CNBC's bi-coastal tech-focused program, Tech Check, delivering reporting analysis and CEO interviews with a focus on social media and the intersection of media and technology. She also created and launched the CNBC Disruptor 50 an annual list that she oversees highlighting private companies transforming the economy and challenging companies in established industries. And in this interview, we're going to really focus on the gender gap that still plays out in venture capital in the boardroom and across the tech ecosystem and the business ecosystem, right? It's not just tech. We're going to talk about how women are more likely to deploy certain types of leadership tools, things like leading with gratitude or servant leadership. And these are powerful strategies. And that's the thing that I want to leave you with before we get into the interview is that this is not just a book for women to read. It's for you too, guys, because these specific tools that women tend to use more, they work for everybody and they can be incredibly powerful. Now, I do want to obviously hit my small ask, never skip the small ask. My small ask today is merch. As you will recall at FOMOSapiens.com, there are hats, there are stickers, there are mugs, if you haven't gotten one yet, the holidays are coming up. Good time to think about it. Go check it out at FOMOSapiens.com. I promise you will not be disappointed. When I wear mine around, I get a lot of love. <laughs> All right. And now on to the interview. As you know, I start every interview with the same question. And of course, for Julia, I stuck to the plan. I started our interview by asking her this. What's the most important decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? 
Well, I think there were two. I don't know if that's cheating to give two. The first was to take a job at Fortune Magazine when I was 21 years old, straight out of college, and I didn't know anything about business. The truth is I had never taken econ. I had never taken a business class, but this was a job opportunity that opened up right before the stock market crashed in 2000, and it was a better opportunity. And I think I've always tried to sort of seize the opportunities when they're there, even if it's not exactly what I think I wanted. So that was uh, the the best call there. Better to take a reporter job at Fortune Magazine than to be a fact fact checker at Entertainment Weekly, which at the time seemed like a much more exciting and sexy magazine to me. Since then, I've I've come to, to think otherwise. And then the second choice was to take the leap and go into television six years into my career at Fortune Magazine when I had a pretty great life. I got offered this full-time job as a TV reporter. I never really thought about doing that, but I figured I should should try it out for at least a year. And here I am, 16 years later, still on CNBC. Yeah. And I everybody who's listening, so we've known each other for a long time. I remember when you started on CNBC and now, you know, you're so seasoned and you were just starting out and like you were finding your way. You were very good, but it was clear that, you know, you were making that transition. <laughs> and and it's kind of wild to, to watch it all. And I was just wondering, you know, it's it looks so great from the outside, right? This is a classic FOMO versus reality thing where we see it (laughs) and we're like, wow, it's amazing and it's so glamorous, but like, it's hard work. I know it's hard. Such hard work. What's making that transition like? Like, what were the unexpected challenges that you encountered and how did you deal with them? Well, you're right, Patrick. We haven't known each other a long time and you are probably referring to some of my early days on television, which were quite awkward, not really knowing how to read a teleprompter, not knowing where to look. It did not, uh, it, it certainly, even back then, did not look glamorous. Now it may look glamorous, but it's not glamorous. Um, back in the day, when I was offered this job at CNBC, I'd been a contributor to CNN. So I'd go on a couple days a week, and I would answer questions. Answering questions is very natural. It's just like talking like we are now. But delivering a script on television is totally different. You have to figure out how to write something that's 60 seconds or 90 seconds or sometimes even 40 seconds that's going to tell a story. It was a very different process than what I was used to writing thousand word articles for Fortune magazine. So it was figuring out how to adapt the writing and then figuring out how to match visuals with it. You have to find video to, to match with it and then figuring out how to deliver it so you don't look like an idiot. And that was something that it took me a while to figure out. I had a couple of people help me out along the way, tell me where to look. Um, and uh, and it's, it's certainly gotten a lot better. But I remember someone said to me once, um, thanks for being here. And I said, thank you for being here. <laughs> so that sort of awkwardness <laughs> of like not knowing how to, how to interact on television. Now, you didn't just restrict yourself to print journalism or TV, you have moved into the world of books and we are lucky for it because your new book, When Women Lead, it's that kind of perfect combination. And I'm not just saying this because we're friends. I I opened the book and I was just like kind of blown away by this combination of really good stories from all these interviews you did with really prominent female entrepreneurs and men as well. But then you combine it with data and you give us trends that we can analyze and learn from. But you start the book By telling us a personal story, a story from your childhood, you had this opportunity to see Gloria Steinem speak at your school, who, she's amazing. I've just been reading up on her a little bit. And you're in the car with your mom and you have a conversation. Tell us about that conversation. 
I will never forget this. So I, we, my friends and I had heard Gloria Steinem speak. She came and spoke to our whole school. I was in seventh grade. And she was talking about the progress that women had made and the progress that still needed to be done. And I remember my mom picked us up and was driving us home, a bunch of girls. And my mom was so thrilled that we had gotten to see this legend speak. And she was saying, oh, by the time you grow up, everything's going to be different. When I was growing up, I didn't have very many choices. My parents expected me either to be a, a nurse or a teacher. And that was kind of it. I didn't have options. I was expected to be a homemaker. And you girls are going to be able to do whatever you wanted. There are going to be equal numbers of women in Congress, of women running companies, and the, the world will be your oyster. And I was like, yeah, of course, like, of course, things are going to be equal by the time I've grown up. Like, obviously, that we've already made so much progress. It didn't even occur to me that um, that things would not have made that much progress. And I sort of saw Gloria Steinem as impressive, but in a lot of ways, as a relic mm. of another age. Mm. And now, and 10 years after that car ride with my mom, I realized that Gloria Steinem was not a relic that there was still a lot of work to be done and there were massive inequities. And one of the reasons this book is, is packed with so much data is just breaking down why there's such massive gender gaps in leadership and also why that doesn't make sense um, from, from an investing standpoint, from a financial standpoint. In a lot of ways, it's like an arbitrage opportunity. If you want to succeed, you should be looking at investing in more women or, or finding more opportunities in women. So um, I wanted to really lay it all out in a way that I hadn't found in any other book before. Yeah, I, I'm curious. We'll, I, I want to get into those numbers in a second. But first, before we go there, you know, it's I, I remember thinking the same thing as a kid. I mean, we, you're, you're told, you know, listen, the world has changed. And, you know, you remember. And by the way, for, in, in schools around the country, in high schools, girls tend to do better than boys. And so you just kind of expect that to continue. And then you get out into the real world and you realize it's different. When did you kind of wake up and say, wow, this is not what I sort of had bargained for. The world is different. Well, it was definitely the same for me, Patrick. I mean, I remember I was on the newspaper in college. It was equal numbers of men and women. It was not anything unbalanced. All my classes were the same. And then my first day of work at Fortune Magazine, I saw the imbalance in terms of the number of men and women who are in the senior editor positions. The senior positions were vastly more men than women. And there were a couple of women here and there, but it was the majority of people in powerful positions were men. At my level and at the level of people in their 20s and early 30s, it was much more balanced. But the older you got, the more it was men in positions of power. But I had a conversation with someone my first day on the job, and it was a woman who was in sort of a a managerial role um, and a sort of facilitator role. And she said, oh, it's good news. Good news. Uh, you know, she was running through lots of different things. And she was like, good news. Um, there was just a big sexual harassment suit. So everyone will be on their best behavior. <laughs> and I was like, what? I was like, what? What does that even mean? It was so mind boggling to me to think that a sexual harassment lawsuit and a settlement was a good thing because that meant that people were then going to have to behave themselves or the men would be reminded to behave themselves. And it just, it just lay out to me what all the problems were. People were looking at this, this power imbalance practically. Yes. Men held more power. Yes. At younger levels, there were more women. Sometimes women sort of left to, because they wanted to, you know, have families or whatever, or have a better work-life balance or whatever it was. But definitely there were the, the older you were at the magazine, the more likely you were to be a man in a position of power. And then, you know, the fact that the sexual harassment stuff just was there and existed. And this was many, many years before Me Too and Time's Up 
Um, but just reminded me that like, whoa, my mom was wrong. I was even more wrong to, <laughs> to assume that sh- what she was saying was obvious and that men and women would be in equal positions. And there weren't that many women in, in CEO roles. At Fortune Magazine, we had all these major CEOs come through our doors. We had them on the cover of the magazine. There were amazing interviews. But the truth is, is that when it came to people in finance, whether it was CEOs or CFOs or fund managers or analysts, the vast, vast majority of them are men, are men and were men. Fewer now, but back then, the vast, vast majority were men. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. And so when you look at the numbers, you lay out a case in the book that's very interesting. And I I found it surprising. Some of the stuff I knew, but there was definitely information I hadn't seen before. Because if you look at business schools, around 40% of the students are female, 42% of small business owners are women. So, you know, there's a reasonable quality there. But then when you look at the leadership ranks, only 8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. And between 2011 and 2020, women represented just 3% of venture capital in terms of where the money went. So it's like there's all this talent in the system, but the leadership and the money is not flowing to these people and these women. And so what is going on there? It's crazy. The numbers are crazy. I can't tell you how many people who do not believe that 3% of all venture capital dollars in the past decade have gone to female founders. It is a crazy number. And in fact, in 2021, it declined to 2% Hmm. of all venture capital dollars. The reason why I wanted to focus on venture funded startups and on the tech space in general is because those numbers are so insane. More crazy than the percentage of female CEOs of uh, Fortune 500 companies. And that comes down to the fact also that venture capital is so powerful. VC dollars have backed every major game-changing startup from Google to Airbnb to Uber. All of the companies that change the way we live and work succeeded because of venture capital. So tech we know is incredibly powerful and without venture capital dollars, you can't really get there. So um, what I thought was really interesting is women drop two or three percent of venture capital funding and i was interviewing and meeting these women the women who had succeeded the women who had founded these crazy amazing game-changing companies like jennifer holmgren ceo of lanza tech a company that turns pollution into fuel something that seems impossible but she had figured out how to do it um using biotechnology or people like Julie Wainwright, CEO of The Real Real, which is totally changing the way people think about retail. So I was looking at these numbers, 2% of venture capital funding, and then I was interviewing these women who had managed to get some of that venture capital funding. 
And I was thinking, of course, these women are amazing. By definition, they are exceptional. They are exceptions to the rule. And what I wanted to do in this book is understand how these women who had managed to defy the odds on so many different layers, how had they managed to defy the odds? What were their approaches? What were their strategies? What are their characteristics that have been so effective for them that we can learn from um, and, and apply to our world and apply to whether it's a, a, our work or our desire to be entrepreneurs or whatever it is, their skills that help them succeed would be effective tools for anyone. Yeah. And as you're listening, I want everybody who's listening to, to pay attention to one important thing. We're going to learn from these examples of women and how they lead but men can lead with these same tools as well. So this book isn't, you know, just a book for women to read. It's a book for men to read as well because these are these are skills that we should be deploying as well. Of course, we should be supporting women and having equality in where this money goes, but let's all recognize that these things work and we can make our businesses better. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at a group of people who have so many of these odds stacked against them and have managed to succeed anyways, I would want to know whatever those skills were, regardless of whether or not I had anything in common with that group. So yes, this book is written for men to not only understand what's going on here, but so they can adopt some of these approaches. So for instance, you know, there are approaches I talk about in this book, like leading with gratitude. If you have gratitude top of mind when you're making decisions, there are all this, there are all these studies and so much data showing that you're able to plan more for the long term. We know that long term planning is essential for success in business, but the idea of tying it to gratitude can be a game changer. So I talk about how gratitude is more likely to be used by female leaders, and there's plenty of data about that. But there's also data showing that when men choose to lead this way or or do lead this way, then that can also be incredibly effective. So the book is packed with studies talking about these characteristics that women are more likely to, to have and strategies they're more likely to adopt, but also showing that no matter who uses these strategies, they're more likely to be effective. So for instance, servant leadership, this idea of prioritizing um, other uh, stakeholders, such as employees or investors, that's something that women are incredibly effective when they use. And I talk about a couple of CEOs like Tala CEO, Shivani Soroya, um, and some others in the book who use this approach. But guess what? Howard Schultz from Starbucks, um, CEO of FedEx. These are men who have also talked about the positive benefits of using this approach. It just happens to be that when we talk about leadership, we have this image and this idea of top-down, agentic, hierarchical leadership. And even though that's the image out there, it doesn't mean that's actually what's most effective. So everybody listening, Shivani Soroya of Tala was on FOMO Sapiens. So if you want to learn more about her, just go back to season six. I want to talk about this gratitude leading using gratitude to solve big picture problems. Now you mentioned that and it sounds amazing. Can you give us an example that you have in the book that shows how that is actually done? Um, well, so I think the interesting thing to me about gratitude is this idea that it enables long-term thinking. So there's an amazing entrepreneur in the book named Julia Collins. Her first uh, company that she founded called Zoom was a pizza company. And it was a crazy company that was going to do robotic pizza making in the back of a pizza truck, kind of Jetsons-like stuff. Um, and it failed spectacularly after getting a huge infusion of money from SoftBank. But 
when that company failed, she said, I really want to create a company that's going to have a long-term impact. She said, I feel so grateful to have learned from all these people over the years to be in a position where I can actually do something to help the environment. And I feel grateful for my learning, for my abilities, and for my connections. And she says, I'm going to use that gratitude for everything I have and create a company that's going to really help when it comes to agriculture. There's all this data about how agriculture is just leaching the soil. It's it's not actually doing anything that's beneficial for the long term. And obviously, a huge amount of greenhouse gases are created by the food industry. So she's created this company called Planet Forward. They have a food product out there, um, a snack brand that's just made with it, with that's all made with regenerative agriculture practices. But they also have this system to help companies um, improve their agriculture practices and have them be more environmentally friendly. So use uh, farmers who are, are using regenerative agriculture practices and actually improving the soil. And so they serve dozens and dozens of companies and are helping these packaged food brands improve their practices. This is a big project for her. And she says she's not working for quarterly results or for for profitability in two years. She's looking at 10 years, 20 years, and really focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So by having that gratitude front and center, she's able to think more about the long term than rather than be anxious about about a near term win. Yeah, it's just a better way to build a business. And I'd never thought of that connection. But I mean, one thing we, we actually talk about gratitude a decent amount on the show, because if you have gratitude, you can better manage your FOMO. And it sounds like that's what's actually kind of happening. Exactly. There. Exactly. FOMO is all about wanting something right now. Right. So yeah. gratitude is about the long term. I love it. Okay. Now you have, um, you have uh, in the back of the book, you do sum up some of the big lessons and, you know, with, for folks who are going to read this and we all are going to read it when women lead, uh, I just want to give a sense of a couple of the big takeaways that you, you know, you, you came at from these, I think 120 interviews you did. Yes, I did about 120 interviews. There are about 65 women in the book, hundreds of academic studies woven through there. And I found actually in writing this book that it really changed the way I live my own life as mm. as a journalist, as a as an employee, um, and even as like a little mini entrepreneur trying to create things within CNBC. And so it was really fascinating to see how all of these interviews and then the research and the takeaways was changing how I saw the world. It wasn't just about telling these women's stories. It was actually influencing the way I live and work. Um, and one of the main ones that I really think about a lot is that superpowers don't look like powers. And there's so many things that were unexpected in terms of what is what helps people be good leaders. And it's not about strength or things that display as strength or unwavering confidence. Um, and one of my favorite things in the, in the book is this idea that when you're facing challenges or double standards or something that feels really impossible, it's often incredibly useful to take a step back and do something that's meaningful to you or like connect with another part of your personality. So for me, I have a terrible day at work. I go hang out with my kids. I'm like, oh, none of that really matters because I get to be with my kids. Or for someone who's a baker or an artist, they get to go do their thing and they're like, okay, I'm really good at this other thing. I'm not going to be bothered by my uh, horrible criticism from my boss. And I think that all of these little things that are so useful, these other identities that for us just seem like fun can actually be really useful and can be empowering in other ways. And so I think that 
we have this image that everyone has to look like a Mark Zuckerberg to be a founder or has to drop out of college or has to know what they're doing at age 22 years old. But we all have our own strengths that are, have nothing to do with that. And the more we could get to know ourselves and understand what our personal strengths are, the more we could use those to our advantage rather than trying to fit ourselves into a box of what success or leadership is supposed to look like, which, by the way, the data shows isn't necessarily what actually works. Uh, this is so important. And be, and I'm going to stop here because I had I'm not going to tell the whole story, but basically I had something happen recently where I was supposed to get this sort of accolade or something that was important to me that was somebody was going to do for me. And then it didn't happen. And I felt so bummed out about it. And as I talked to people about it, somebody pointed out to me, they said, this doesn't really matter. You're letting somebody else define your success or failure on a metric that you don't even really care about if you think about it. And so what you're saying, what I'm hearing here is, yeah, you may be on some metric that somebody is judging you on. You may not have hit the mark this time or that time. But if you take back the power to decide what the metrics that are important to you are, you're going to be able to be a lot happier because you're setting the tone for your own success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also to be able to measure yourself against your own progress. There is this this whole idea of self-measurement. And there's this idea that women don't like to compete against other people. And the truth is there's some data showing that women are less likely to be directly competitive against another person. But you know where women are more competitive? It's when they're competing against themselves. And guess what? When you're in business, competing against yourself is the most important thing. There's some great data in the book about how athletes have this, this way of measuring their progress and um, sort of do your own performance reviews. And the reality is, is that for all of us, whether you're starting a company or just trying to get a project done at work, there are things you can control and things you can't control. There's no point in, in, in trying to change the things you can't control. What you can do is you can improve yourself and measure your own progress. So I think there's this idea that we all have our own superpowers. I've, every woman I interviewed in one way or another asked her, what is your superpower? For me, I think my superpower is asking questions. I love to ask questions and I think I'm pretty good at it. But um, we all have different skill sets. And I think we can use those skill sets, not create other ones that we don't have, but develop our own school's skill sets to our advantage um, and figure out how to best exploit what comes naturally to us and what we most enjoy. Um, so I think that's really essential. And then I think this idea of measure your own progress and push yourself. Don't be driven crazy by the stuff you can't control. Understand what it is that you can't control so you could do a better job of pushing yourself. FOMO. FOMO. Now you have another takeaway here that I really like. I'm curious to get your take on this. And it's we all get scared and that's actually a good thing. Talk about that. Can you believe that being scared is actually a good thing? Um, I, I was really surprised by this one. Um, I used to get really anxious before I would go on stage to do a big interview in front of hundreds of people or before I had a big CEO interview. And I would over-prepare and over-prepare and over-prepare. And ultimately, that ended up being really helpful to me. What I didn't realize is that is actually a strategy. And there's data showing that it's not good to be super confident all the time which was shocking to me. I thought in business, you're supposed to always be really confident. But the data shows that what you want is to be able to turn down your confidence when you're gathering information to make a big decision. Turn down that confidence so you can accept ideas, so you can draw ideas from everywhere across an organization, from all of your friends and allies and rivals and everyone just gather that information. Then you turn up your confidence when you're executing. And this is something I saw from a number of women 
in the book. Um, you know, clear CEO, Karen Seidman Becker, um, and uh, two other women I have in this chapter on managing in a crisis. Uh, the, uh, Claire Babino-Fontenot, who's the CEO of Feeding America, and also Michelle Nunn, who's a CD- CEO of CARE, which is a, a massive nonprofit. These women figured out how not to make decisions that impacted everyone, but rather gather information about what was working on the ground. And and there's this whole idea of an adaptability quotient. We talk about IQ, we talked about EQ, but perhaps what's even more important is this idea of AQ, the adaptability quotient. And you can't be adaptable if you're not listening to other people and gathering information. So I love this idea that if I'm really anxious, then maybe that's a great thing. It gives me an opportunity to prepare myself and do what I need to do. So when it comes time to performing, then I've got it. And I know I, I, I've, I've done the work and I'm ready to execute. And the same thing is true in business. And there are some great examples of this throughout the book. So I think a little anxiety can can be hugely valuable. I got to tell you, all I want to do right now is send a copy of your book to Adam Newman over at WeWork <laughs> and say, if you had done what Julia said, you'd still be the CEO. Because that's where a lot of these <laughs> these leaders of startups, the ones who raise the billions of dollars and have, you know, they seem they're they're held up as these gods and that they can make no mistake in their visionaries. They their blind spots come from that, that they don't humble themselves enough to listen because they start to believe their own hype. Absolutely. And there's some there's some great stories in the book about women who created systems to help draw ideas from across the organization. So there's this woman, Deidre Packnad, who has a company called Workboard, and it's a software designed to help people manage their objectives and results across the organization. And part of it is drawing in ideas from different teams um, or um uh, Jen Tejada, who's the CEO of PagerDuty, she talks about wanting to create environments where people can speak up and do speak up in meetings because you're not going to get the best ideas if the boss is the only one talking. It just doesn't work that way. No, and good people will leave. Now, I do want to end with a third one, another takeaway that you found and talk about this. Understand your obstacles. So unpack that for us. So I feel like I, I spent a lot of time uh trying not to worry about the stuff that I can't control, right? So it's like the serenity prayer, just don't don't waste my time on that stuff. I have enough to worry about anyways. But the reality is, is that just ignoring the problems doesn't help, especially if you're looking at something like the challenges in this book. So for your women listeners, um, there are so many double standards and complicated things about leading or managing as a woman, raising money as a woman. The numbers and statistics are crazy. There is so much information about pattern matching and bias that explains why the, the VC funding has gone the way it has. But the reality is, is that you don't want to just ignore that stuff. You want to understand it. And that's so you can figure out how to better navigate it. And I think whatever situation you're in, you don't want to ignore what you can't control. You want to analyze it so you can figure out how to put it aside and, and figure out how not to let it bother you, but also how to better navigate it. Um, there's a woman I interview in the book, Aya Badir. She founded a company called Little Bits, which was a kid's toy coding company. And she's um, Lebanese and she's a woman and she faced all sorts of different kinds of bias when she was raising money and, and trying to grow her company. And she said for her, learning to identify bias as bias was immensely valuable. She said it was like remembering to put on a jacket when it's cold. And I love this idea. It's not like it's going to ruin your life. You just have to work around it. She's like, if I remember my jacket when it's cold, 
all be able to manage this bias. And it also stopped it from being so discouraging. There were so many women in this book where I said, how did you succeed? How did you manage to persist despite all of these obstacles? And they all figured out how not to let the bias and the challenges bother them. And a lot of that is saying like, hey, this is not my problem. This is not about me. This is about institutional bias that has nothing to do with how good or bad my business actually is. So that's why I think in whatever situation you're in, if you can figure out what the obstacle is, you'll do a better job in, in, in succeeding around it. All right. The book is called When Women Lead. You can find out more about Julia at juliaborston.com. You can find her on Twitter at jborston and on Instagram at juliaborston. Julia Borston, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Patrick. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.